Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're seeing uh, the federal government over the last number of years uh, moving forward with a number of solely environmental-focused acts uh, that are having uh, an impact on our ability to continue to produce uh, what, in our cases, some of the most sustainable products that are that are produced relative to uh, their competitors that are anywhere in the world. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on the air with us a week ago talking about the Saskatchewan First Act which uh, his government has tabled in the legislature, and he hinted toward that, on uh, this program on the Roy Green Show about a year ago. We're joined now by the premier of the neighboring province, one province to the west, Alberta. Premier Daniel Smith joins us. Premier, how are you? Well, hello, Roy. Nice to see you. Uh, yeah, listen, it must sound feel a little bit like the old days, right? You're on uh, Ask the Premier yesterday, and here you are with me, You're back doing daily radio. As you know, I've always loved talk radio as I, a medium, because you can have full conversations, and you, you can. can get great feedback, so I'm glad to be on again. So I wasn't going to talk about this, but it's been raised so many times. You received the support of 54.5% of the Brooks Medicine Hat voters who did vote. And that's been challenged as a not great voter endorsement. So I found it interesting, and I checked on the percentage of support the current prime minister received in his Montreal riding of Papineau. In last year's federal election, Mr. Trudeau received 50.3% of the vote, which was down from his support in the 2019 federal election and uh, was down from 2015. And he called the elections in 2019 and 21. So it's really about winning or losing, or what significance do you place to that 54.5%? Well, I doubled the NDP level of support, and that was my next closest competitor. And so when you're looking at percentages, you have to wonder, you have to ask if there was any real danger of losing. And I would say in this case, it was not the case. The other thing that was there was another party leader in this contest. The Alberta party also ran their leader, and he is from the area, and he's been campaigning for some time. So I was I was pretty pleased at the, at the outcome. By-elections, can can sometimes go sideways on a leader. We've seen in the past, for instance, that um, that's part of the way the Wild Rose got a breakthrough in the first place in an urban riding was that uh, they wanted to send a message to government. So I think the message that I heard was that people still have very strong support for our party, but that we have some proving to do, that we've got to make sure to address the things that caused us trouble in the last two and a half years. Yeah, six months you have. Before the election, so there are specifics I want to talk to you about. We'll approach this from a slightly different perspective from uh, Ask the Premier yesterday. We'll have a more broad perspective across the country. People are interested in what uh, you're planning and your mandate letters to your ministers focus on the affordability crisis and on inflation, twin issues which affect people across Alberta and right across Canada, and we hear it constantly. Now, you have a treasury with cash in hand, but ultimately, how much maneuverability do you have in this regard as a province and a provincial government going beyond next May's provincial election date? In other words, how much, how much can you really do about affordability and, and inflation? A lot, because I think where people really feel the the pressure during the winter months is on electricity bills, home heating bills. So we will have a strategy around that. We're also still seeing the pinch from gasoline and and diesel fuel prices. You saw as well, I just listened in the news that uh, Premier Doug Ford has talked about a reprieve on fuel taxes for yet another year. I mean, we've been asking the federal government to suspend the carbon tax and certainly not to follow through with a 300% increase in the carbon tax. That's fallen on deaf ears. So we will have to do something quite similar. I see in uh, Saskatchewan, that they have announced uh, giving uh, one-time payments to anyone over the age of 18. And that's been done in our province before. I prefer personally a bit more of a targeted approach to make sure that we're addressing seniors who are, every time I knock on a door of a senior, and I've done, I've done a lot of door knocking, as you can imagine, in the last month as I was trying to win my by-election. When you meet seniors, they, they'll tell you about the cost of pharmaceuticals and the cost of groceries, which is very they're very sensitive to. Or you knock on the door of parents with teenage kids, same thing. Gasoline and diesel prices as, they're, uh, as their kids are driving, the cost of groceries, the uh, concern 
that they have about go home home heating and and power bills. So we can do quite a bit on that. We also I've also given direction to my affordability and utilities minister that we we have to re-index the uh, the various benefits programs that had been suspended on their indexing. So um, we have a an income support program for the severely handicapped for our seniors as well. So those are going to be re-indexed along with re-indexing the, the personal income tax system, because mm-hmm. as people get driven up in in the amount that they earn as a result of inflation, we, we just don't want them penalized by having to pay okay. more taxes. So we're re-indexing there too. We can do an awful lot and we're going to in the fall session. Did you say affordability and uh, what was it? Affordability and utilities. Boy, talk about a term for the times. Yeah, well, you know, it's the when I look at the there's a whole broad range of issues that we've got there around electricity, heating, broadband, internet access. I I wanted to have a minister who could look across uh, and and identify the pressure points wherever they happen to be, and so I wanted to give him that flexibility. Should have had a middle class minister anyway. That's another story. Is and it's true, and you're quite right on that because that was the feedback that I got at the doors was that there are are often uh, targeted support programs for those who are really low income. So I think they do a pretty good job. That's important. Yes, but then it's that middle income group, the ones with uh, maybe it's a double income family, but if you've got four teenagers at home and a big mortgage and you're paying off student loan bills, that's a real pinch when you get into this. this Well, we want to make sure we we support them. We know from polling that about 50% of the Canadian population is within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. But let me ask you this. Is inflation and affordability going to potentially be the first clash with the Trudeau government, with your government engaging the Sovereignty Act, I'll ask you more about that in a minute, to push back against the imposition of an increase in the carbon tax and increasing fuel taxes levied by the prime minister and his finance minister? Could this be the first pushback? We're going to do whatever we can to counteract it because we do also levy our own fuel taxes. And so if we offer a reprieve, it can counteract what the federal government does. We're, we're going to keep pushing against them on these issues. And I've asked my my uh, justice minister to have a look at whether or not we can relitigate the Supreme Court decision that came down on the issue of the carbon tax. Because I remember we, we, we were only arguing one very narrow uh, aspect of law and we didn't consider issues of energy security and, and energy affordability. And so if we have new arguments and new information on the table, you can always take that back to the courts. So I'm, I'm still in the process of getting an assessment on that. But at the moment, we need to act urgently. And acting urgently means that because we have the we do have the benefit of, of having surpluses so, as a result of the strong oil prices, we're, we're going to give some of that back to Albertans. Premier, am I hearing you say that this could be the first pushback using the Sovereignty Act, and that's not altogether yet. We understand that's going to be in about a month. But uh, could this be the first use of the Sovereignty Act to push back against the federal government on carbon tax? I have said that I will respect Supreme Court decisions. And so the Supreme Court has rendered a decision on this. Now we just have to be looking at ways in which we can counteract what uh, the, the harm that the the carbon tax is causing. And there's no question it's causing harm. It's at, levied at too high a level. It's levied unfairly in provinces where we rely so heavily on natural gas for our home heating and natural gas for our electricity. Mm-hmm. So, um, And it's also not levied the same way across the, the country. I, I'm speaking with uh, Quebec Premier Francois Legault, and he mentioned that they're, they don't have retail carbon taxes because they've got a cap-and-trade system. And because they have a cap-and-trade system, their price of carbon is actually lower than it is um, with the floor price. So there, there could be an avenue for litigation there as well. You mm-hmm. can't levy a tax unfairly across jurisdictions. And okay. so I think the federal government should be should be mindful that we're looking at all of these measures because people are really feeling the pinch. And a lot of it is because they've raised the price of everything because right. of the carbon tax policy. I don't want to beat this horse to death. Do you see the likelihood or the potential for a clash with the federal government in the approaches to climate change that uh, Alberta and the federal government will adopt? Well, we aren't going to clash if they acknowledge our areas of jurisdiction and that we have the exclusive right to develop our resources and we have the exclusive right to develop conservation policy around our resources and we have the right to be able to export our products to market. That's why we have to be there because I don't feel that the federal government and uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gibbeau in particular has done a particularly good job of conveying that we're here to help our German friends and our UK friends who are looking for long-term LNG agreements. And I asked, uh, I tasked Sonia Savage, our environment minister, with meeting with the German delegation to see if there is some way that we can get um, a long-term agreement. We're, we're 
working on having a, a trade mission to uh, Germany and Poland in the new year. And we've made some initial great inroads. They are very interested in talking to us about a long-term agreement on LNG and very interested in, as well in talking about carbon technology mm-hmm. and how we might capture CO2 as a way of making sure that we uh, reduce emissions that way. So those are the reasons why we're there. She's um, The minister sent me a briefing note of all of the great meetings that she's had, and including okay. with the other delegations that are there so that we can develop a common approach. But I, I completely agree with um, with. Uh, Premier Scott Moe. This is an area of provincial jurisdiction, and uh, they can uh, we can work collaboratively to make sure that we're achieving national goals, but we have to be able to take the lead on the development or, of our own resources. Okay. Are you planning on working in tandem with Saskatchewan and Premier Scott Moe um, and his Saskatchewan First Act? Yes? <laughs> 100%. No surprise. The more there. I can work with him, and also with... Um, Manitoba Premier mm-hmm. uh, Heather Stephenson, um, certainly uh, also, I think, uh, uh, Premier Doug Ford. I think that there's a, a lot of common cause among our four provinces uh, or five provinces. And so I, I think we're, we may have an opportunity as well with uh, with British Columbia. There's new leadership there. So I'm going to keep an open mind. We may, They've been very friendly about developing LNG. And I think we can work collaboratively okay. on that. So I, I think we're beginning to see the the, the, the shaping of a, a new approach to, to energy policy led by provinces. And I'm more than happy to work with others who feel the same way. Let me uh, ask you about health care and covid and the flu season, and respiratory illness in children. Tomorrow, the Ontario Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Moore, will stress Ontarians should wear a mask when in an indoor setting. No mandate, just stressing wear a mask for the safety of the children of the province. Could you see yourself endorsing something like that? I think if people feel comfortable wearing a mask and want to do it to protect themselves, they should feel free to do that. But I think we also have to respect that there are others who feel differently. So I'm pleased to hear that he's not imposing mandates because we won't be imposing mandates in Alberta either. But there are things that we need to be worried about this this fall season. We've got COVID circulating as well as influenza, as well as RSV. And I, I think if we're going to be offering protection to kids, we've got to make sure that we've got children's Tylenol available. So I've already convened a, a meeting with, with my team here to see if there's some way that we can procure a supply. I think we're awaiting an announcement from the federal government. But this is going to, to be with us for several more months. And, and when I'm hearing mom groups sharing concerns about not being able to access this medicine so that they can bring fevers down, that has me very worried. And we've got to take some lead on that. So I want to make sure that we're doing things that are practical, that are going to work, that are going to, to save lives. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is the, the best effort that we could do right now is making sure that we're procuring enough of that medicine so that kids can be treated. Yeah, Prima, the economy and healthcare always top of mind, particularly now. So let me ask you about healthcare. Healthcare across Canada is in crisis mode. I've had two CMA presidents share that view, heard it from nurses' unions, and certainly heard it from governments. Surgical backlogs are dangerously lengthy. Diagnostics are dangerously delayed, if they're available at all. What's the prescription for Alberta to extricate itself from this situation and be responsive and efficient in both rural and urban settings? Can you do it? Because it's not just about money. It's about availability of doctors, nurses, paramedics, and healthcare professionals. We're going to be making some decisions very soon. And uh, the the areas that we have to make sure that we're addressing is that everybody needs to know that when they call an ambulance, it's going to be able to get them to a hospital so they can get treatment. They need to know that when they get to the hospital to receive treatment, that they either get triaged and treated right away or they get admitted right away, that they won't be waiting 20 to 30 hours in an emergency room. Um, awaiting care. And we also need to clear the surgical backlog by making sure we're using all of our facilities. But how do you do that? We're not doing that right now. How how do you do that? What we will do is we're going to be hands-on on it. And I've, I've made it very clear that um, that myself and my health minister need to be involved in, in helping to restructure healthcare. We, we left things to the to the experts for a long time. In our province, we went further, I think, than any other province in centralizing decision-making. And we allowed for them to tell us all they needed was more money and more time. And they would be able to address capacity issues. They'd be able to address the surge that we have every single year in respiratory virus season, and they failed. And so now we need to bring in a different team of experts and try some new management. That's what you do when you're, you've got a company 
and you delegate to managers to deliver on on performance and they fail, then you have to come in and you have to change the management. So that's the approach that we're going to take. We're going to try some things. We're going to talk with the nurses, doctors, paramedics, frontline, so that they can tell us what they think needs to be done. Okay, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Premier. But there's a limited amount of time and people are suffering and struggling. We have hundreds of thousands of surgeries in backlog in this country. There's really a limited amount of time. So the plan has to be in place and it has to be executed quickly. You know that. I sure do. And that's why we're going to execute very quickly. So there are have there been um, all kinds of studies and all kinds of reports that have been done year after year. We've studied this enough. We, we had an Auditor General report in 2017 that tell, told us what we needed to do. We've just done a major review. Our health minister went around the province talking to rural communities. We've done a review on EMS. We have the answers. Now it's a matter of executing them. And the, the problem that I've observed is that politicians come up with the answers and then the bureaucracy and the management says, oh, well, let's have a task force and then we'll do a strategic review and then we'll do a pilot project six months from now. That you is, don't like that. Huh? That is way too far in the future. Okay. We are we know what the answers are. We're going to start implementing some and of these I, pilot projects. I don't mean right to be cynical, but I agree with you. We've seen these reports and they used to car- gather dust. Now they just are filed somewhere in a folder uh, on your on your phone or whatever. Now, last question for you. And again, this is the bigger, so this is a national perspective question. You've talked about the, uh, you want to work with Premier Scott Moe, who's been very direct and been on this program many times, talked about what the Saskatchewan objectives are. Yours are in alignment. You've talked about the potential of Manitoba joining in in this in this, this approach, perhaps British Columbia. Are we looking at a Western Canada um, group of, I'll leave Ontario for a second, a Western Canadian group of provinces ready to take on a minority federal government now? I think all of us want to do what's in the best interests of our citizens. And um, we know that we now have this liberal NDP coalition that we're probably stuck with for the next three years. But we're not going to be stuck just suffering the pain of bad decision making. We're going to work with our friends and allies to see if we can move forward on some things, on economic corridors, on helping to get First Nations buy-in, on building new infrastructure, including pipelines. So we're going to take the lead on that because I believe under the Constitution, we have the mandate and the power and uh, if that puts us in clash with the federal government, I, I guess we'll we'll be battling it out in court. But we are not going to stop. We know that for our people here and for the world, that Alberta can provide energy security. We can provide food security. We can do it with the very best in environmental record of, of our competitors. And mm-hmm. we're going to celebrate that. And we're going to build those partnerships with or without the federal government. Hopefully, they'll support us. Hopefully, they'll be helpful. Hopefully, they won't be obstru- obstructionist. But they, they need to get out of our way because we're going to take the lead on this. In March of next year, mental illness may qualify for medical assistance in dying, made, M-A-I-D. And increasingly, Canadians are engaging or considering engaging in made. I've heard people say to me that that's what they're thinking of doing when they're, when they're ill, particularly after we've aired programs. And we want to talk about the facts and talk about the fallacies as far as medical assistance is in dying is concerned. Dr. Stephanie Green is co-founder and president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. She's the medical advisor to the BC Ministry of Health on the Maid Oversight Committee, moderator for the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers National Online Forum. She's a member of the clinical faculty of UBC, University of British Columbia, and the University of Victoria, and she's the author of This is Assisted Dying. Dr. Green, thanks for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me, Roy. So I I, uh, emailed you. I first broadcast about the issue of medical assistance in dying during Sue Rodriguez's battle for the right to medical assistance in dying in the 90s. And and her petition went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the vote was 5 to 4 against. Had it gone the other way, 5 to 4, medical assistance in dying would have been enshrined in this country. Years and years ago, her lawyer, Ms. Rodriguez's lawyer, Chris Considine uh, of uh, Victoria, has been on this program over the years. Um, and I've also interviewed patients who similarly petitioned. There's a reason for my telling you this. I, I've interviewed patients who petitioned for the right to a medically assisted death. We spoke to a British Columbia logger uh, some years ago, and, and he was doing everything he could to get a physician-assisted death. And his member of parliament was vehemently opposed, and they were on together, on the program together. And they had a really um, positive conversation, but 
the MP's mind wasn't changed. Would you be able to share with us, please, what MAID is and how is it and when is it carried out? Sure. So medical assistance in dying is uh, it's an end-of-life, a compassionate end-of-life care available with the help of a clinician who either prescribes or administers a lethal medication that will end someone's life in a very specific safeguarded circumstance, which includes the explicit request of a competent adult. That's like the formal definition. Essentially, when someone meets the criteria legally and medically, um, then, then it's available to them. Whether they avail themselves of it or not, that is up to the patient. It's a patient-centered, patient-driven care that is basically an exception uh, within the criminal code of this country. So what fundamental parameters must be met in order to be, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word qualify, that's just a terrible word, to be permitted to go forward with medical assistance in death, dying. Yeah, so so I I love to explain exactly what that is. I think some people are maybe under the misunderstanding that it's fairly simple, you just call up and ask for this, and that is simply not the case. It's a very rigorous system. In order to have an assisted death in this country, a patient themselves, nobody else needs to ask for it, they need to ask for it in writing. It needs to be witnessed and signed and dated. So there has to be a formal written request. And then several things need to be true. And you need to be seen by two independent clinicians, and both of them need to verify that these conditions are true. And essentially, you need to be over 18 years of age. You need to be eligible for what we call government-funded health care. So you need to be eligible for Canadian health care. Um, you need to make uh, what's called a voluntary request. So there can be no sign or sense or element of coercion in any way. It can't be because your, you know, your greedy child wants to have the house or your angry spouse wants you out of the way. It has to be a voluntary request by the patients themselves with no sense of coercion towards this by anyone in any way. Patient needs to be capable of making this request, specifically that they understand what, what's wrong with them, what they're asking for, their treatment options, including palliative care, appreciate the results of this request if they have an assisted death, that they will die, and that's irrevocable, and what their life would look like if they don't die. They need to articulate their request, um, like really have a good understanding of what they're uh, requesting. That's, that's all about capacity and giving informed consent to make this request. And the, the issues that people talk about in the news a lot today, on top of all of those things, a patient must have what our law calls a grievous and irremediable condition, just big words for serious illness that's incurable, but it's defined as three elements. So in order to say you have a grievous and irremediable condition, you must have a a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. B, you must already be in an advanced state of decline. And C, you must be enduring a suffering that you yourself believe is intolerable and can't be um, uh, reduced by any means that you find acceptable. So all of those things need to be true in order to be eligible for an assisted death. Are there common denominators that you've encountered with patients who have applied for and, in fact, then carried through with medical assistance in dying? Interesting question. I... I would say that every case is quite unique. Uh, Every person's situation is unique and must be uh, assessed as such. But there are some common features. I mean, you know, we've seen that uh, a lot of the people who have stepped forward for this care uh, tend to be very much wanting control of their lives. They've often been people who've had some sense of control and success in doing that in their lives. I mean, demographically, they tended to be a little bit older a little bit wider, a little bit more socioeconomically advanced, a little higher educated. We see that in the population stepping forward, but really what's driving them is a sense of um, agency. They want to be able to make their own decision about when, when that time is right for them. They don't want the illness to decide um, when they'll take their life. They want themselves to be able to say the date, the time, the place, and the people that will be with them. That sense of control is important. Yeah, I, I've talked to people, I had conversations, and I, particularly after you and I agreed to speak on the program, I've talked to a number of people, and 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 almost everybody said to me, if I get, uh, and I've said it, if I get the verdict that I have a terminal illness, 
I'm going to say, how much time do I have to enjoy my life? And then um, I'm going, again, personal decision. Then this is what you say going in, right? Who knows what you will actually do? Right. But, exactly. But, yeah, I want to make the decision. And if, I, if I, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to ask for. And almost unanimously, everyone I talked to said the same thing. I will want, I will ask for medical assistance in dying again. Whether they do it or not uh, is another question. But it shows a real interest, doesn't it? It does, and one of the really interesting things I didn't expect to find is that when I'm when someone's gone through this very rigorous program, when, when you know two clinicians have done this, and I get to sit in front of someone and say, "Mr. Smith, you're actually eligible for this care. Like, there's no more hoops you have to run through. Everything has been clarified. You've made yourself very clear. You're eligible for this care." It is amazing to me to watch the transformation in the patient just to be told that. Just to know that they have that possibility, that they're empowered to make that decision, is therapeutic in and of itself. I see their suffering mm-hmm. go down mm-hmm. at that very moment. Some people just knowing that they have that option in their back pocket reduces their suffering enough that they have kind of a will to live longer. They know that they can make that phone call to me at any time. And so it gives them that impetus to, to really focus on how they want to live, you know, as opposed to how as opposed to being fearful of how they're going to die. They change their focus from, from dying and fear of dying to living and how they want to live. It's quite remarkable. Dr. Green, uh, in March of next year, mental illness, I hope I've got this correct, may qualify for medical assistance in dying. Controversial? What's the status? What's the situation? Yeah, so I think just to clarify, um, when our original Supreme Court decision came down, the Carter decision in 2015, there was nobody with a particular diagnosis that was excluded from access to MAID. So someone with a mental health disorder wasn't excluded. And when our first law came in 2016, we commonly call it Bill C-14, when the first law got legislated to regulate this care, there was also no particular patient group uh, that was excluded from access just because of their diagnosis. So it wasn't because you had a mental health disorder that you couldn't access MAID. You, you could try. It's just that you had to meet all of the eligibility criteria, and it was extremely difficult to do so. In 2019, a, a different decision happened, and in 2021 became into our law where some of the eligibility criteria were changed, and it seemed to open the door for people whose mental health disorder was their sole and only underlying illness, whereas before they had trouble qualifying, all of a sudden there was a pathway to made for them. So the government specifically excluded for the first time in 2021 those whose mental health disorder was their only underlying diagnosis. And in March of 23, what's happening is that exclusion, that specific exclusion will be lifted out of our law and those whose mental health disorder is their only underlying condition will now have access to MAID once again. How do you feel about that? Well, I think it's a, it's a complex topic. I don't pass judgment on the law. I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't set law. I think my job and those of my colleagues, our job is to do our very best to provide the highest of medical standards under whatever the law currently is. We do that now. We'll do that in March. Will it be challenging? Absolutely it will. It was challenging in 2016 when it was new. It was challenging in 2021 when certain things changed. It will be challenging again in 2023. Uh, We'll have to learn. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, It will be challenging. I've talked to doctors about this, and uh, some doctors have said to me, I can never do that. Um, And and they, they, they know. I mean, they say nobody's forcing anyone to do it. Just I couldn't do that. Right. What I'm assuming that you've assisted someone to die. I've assisted a great many people. Yes. Um, What caused you to become engaged in 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 this endeavor? And I I should let me just be a little personal for a moment. Sure. My wife died um, seven years ago of a very aggressive cancer, Mm, and it was a it was a terrible fourteen months. Thank you. It was a very it was a terrible fourteen months. And we talked on a number of occasions about um, medical assistance in dying, and she was a mm. healthcare professional herself, ultimately decided that that's not what she wanted to do, but she did very seriously consider it. So what, what caused you to decide to, to become engaged? You know, it's not a straight line. It's not because there was a personal event in my family, and there's lots of ways I could answer your question, but I think the core of it 
is two things. Number one, as a, I'm trained as a family physician, and one of the pillars of our care, I think, is to is to really try to respect what we call patient-centered care. It's like a principle of, of, of how we practice. So understanding and respecting that the patient knows themselves best and that what they, you know, how they analyze their situation in their own in their own community, in their own family, in their own selves is what's important. And respecting that autonomy is very important. I'd like to think that my first 22 years of work in maternity care where I delivered babies, that I was able to espouse that and practice that way. But I think the core essence of what you're asking me is how can I as a physician do this work? And I, I really... No, I'm, that, not, I'm not being judgmental. I hope you know that. No, no, no. I totally understand. I, I actually think it's a question that a lot of clinicians ask themselves. And I I think when I go back and think about why I went to medical school, when I think about my colleagues in various fields of healthcare, why are they in this field? Why are they doing this instead of some other job? I really, really believe that people go into healthcare because they want to help people. I think that no matter what we say at our you know, med school interviews, the truth is we go to try to help people. And a lot of what we do is aimed towards that, but not always successful. There's this, there's this um, expression in medicine, which I really like, which is that we cure sometimes. We care often, but we comfort always. And the essence of what a clinician does is we help the people that come to us and ask for our help. We, that's our job. And, and I, as a family physician, I help throughout the entire life stage. So from birth, adolescence, young adulthood, parenting, midlife crisis, old age, decline, and death. These are all stages of life. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to be able to think I can help my patients through all of those stages. And in a way that really honors the patient-centered care that's important, what's important to them. And so when they come asking me for this care, I feel like it's my job, it's my role to, to step in and to provide this care. Yeah. International polling shows a significant majority of people agree that doctors should be permitted to assist in dying painlessly when such a death is requested by a patient and carefully considered by medical professionals. So there is the weight of public opinion is on your side. I've often said, and it's not, I, I don't want to talk about what I think, but I really want to throw this in because we've had these discussions on the air and I've always made the point that in appropriate circumstance, and the only person who decides that to me is the patient. I, um, I agree. Right. So, so, then, so then medical assistance in dying under that circumstance is the final act of compassionate health care. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's exactly it. And, 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 and to be honest, as a, as a clinician, to be invited into that space with someone, that very intimate space, and to help them facilitate that final wish is very, very privileged work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Very, very meaningful work. Um, this is a tough question. I left it to the last one. We have about a minute. Uh, it, people always ask about, well, how young are some patients who ask for, mm-hmm. for MAID? How, how young? Well, they have to be 18 or older according so to be our 18. law, yeah, and I'm aware that, of right. in Ontario that, that it goes as low as 18. So I, I think that we do see a very small amount of people in very young ages accessing this. They're, they're not common, but we have seen some, for sure. The oldest, I'm told, is 114. Huh? The average age, though, is about 75, 76. The winter virus season is here or coming. COVID and more, pediatric ICUs are over capacity in Ontario with rising numbers of viral respiratory infections happening in other provinces as well. And the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health will tomorrow be calling for masks to be worn indoors, not a mandate, but calling for it. And there are questions about vaccinations and booster shots and combining vaccines, COVID annual flu shingles and, and others. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is my guest, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. We'll be taking some calls from you as well after my conversation with Dr. Bogosh. So uh, the question that's going to circulate, circulate, and you know this better than I, is what real difference will masks make? There are different types of masks. These are questions that have evolved over the last two years. There are different types of masks. The masks themselves aren't at least some of, some of the time properly kept virus-free or clean. Masks go into pockets with keys and loose change, and then the same mask is worn dozens or more times. So what's the upside, really, the real upside of wearing a mask? Yeah, I mean, I think we just have to be totally honest and transparent with people. Like, we're obviously 
at an individual level, masks aren't perfect. At a population level, masks aren't perfect. We've known this long before COVID-19. Having said that, if you put on a mask in an indoor setting, you're going to reduce your risk of getting infected. And when I say getting infected, there's a long list of viruses that are circulating now. Of course, we know of COVID. We know of RSV, also known as respiratory syncytial virus. We know of influenza. But there's a bunch more as well that we don't talk about that are still around. You'll just reduce your risk of getting infected. And some of these are pretty nasty. And stating the obvious, if you can avoid getting infected, you should avoid getting infected. Then at a population level, too, again, we know masks aren't going to halt a wave of a virus in its tracks, but it will take the edge off a wave. And at a you know community level, that matters. And that's important because, as you've just pointed out, you know, our, our hospitals are stretched, especially the pediatric hospitals, and uh, that reduces the risk of transmission in the community. It's not amazing. It's not perfect, but it does enough that it will probably take some of the burden off. Okay. Along with the mask um, message, the message is also roll up your sleeve for COVID booster shot, for the annual flu shot. And then, you know, there are other vaccinations that go along that people require at certain times in the year or times in their lives. So what do you do about that? What, what's the advice about, you know, mixing it, not necessarily mixing and matching, but having a lineup of vaccinations that you require at one particular time of year? Yeah, I think it's important to take a step back and look at, you know, what's the goal here? We know there's definitely a flu season and we're in it. And you don't want to get the flu if flu can knock you on your butt and can, you know, kills about 3,000 Canadians a year in a typical flu year, kills about a half a million people per year in a typical flu year. And we're going to have a typical or a more nasty flu year. So, you know, this is avoidable. Again, it's not perfect. It doesn't eliminate your risk of getting the flu. It just reduces your risk of getting the flu. And if you do get it, you can mitigate the severity of symptoms. Get a flu shot free, widely available, safe, and it does the job. And then, of course, there's other other vaccines as well. And some people say, well, what I need a shingles vaccine. I'm supposed to get a whooping cough vaccine. Great. Does it, you know, if you want to get it at the same time, you can. But there's nothing, there's nothing that's, uh, usually these are, you know, vaccines you need every 10 years or there's a massive time. So if you don't want to get it at the same time and want to come back a month later or two months later, that's totally appropriate. I mean, you can, you can do whatever you like. It's important to get it, though. But the real key thing here that's time sensitive is there's a lot of COVID circulating right now. There's an increasing burden of flu circulating right now. It's important to get those vaccines. Okay. And the hospitals are really under stress, eh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And especially the pediatric hospitals. I mean, I'm, I'm on call this weekend. I'm covering several hospitals in downtown Toronto. It's busy. It is busy, and there are respiratory viruses that are coming. So what are you seeing? But, when, do you see, when do you see a child come in with a respiratory virus, like you just said? What, 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 are, what are you seeing? What, what, is, what are the symptoms they're showing? Let's, let's tell people what's actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. So for starters, just to clarify, I deal with adults. Uh, okay. Well, adults then. The yeah, sure. But even peds. I mean, it's not, you know, it's fever, cough, shortness of breath, a wheeze. And, you know, many people might be seen in an emergency department, they might get rehydrated and they're okay enough to go home and recover in the comfort of their own home. But obviously, if some people need uh, assistance with uh, oxygenation and they need supplemental oxygen, you're coming in. If some people are just sick enough where they just can't maintain their hydration on their own and they're just too weak and unable to eat and drink and, 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 maintain, and care for themselves, you're coming in. And, uh, you know, we see in the adult hospitals, we certainly see a lot of that. Um, uh, and it's a lot of it's not all of it, but a lot of it is preventable. A lot of these are vaccine preventable hospital admissions. In the pediatric world, unfortunately, a lot of this is driven by RSV, and we just don't we don't have a commercially available vaccine. We probably will in the next year or so. This has been around for millennia. It's a nasty virus. It's been known to cause problems in little kids and older adults for ages. And the vaccine is most welcome. We'll probably see one licensed in the next year. So there's been some incredible progress over the last decade, especially over the last few years for this. Okay. So there, there's a term that I, I had the story in front of me, and I've done something with it. It drives me uh, bonkers when I have a piece of paper sitting in front of me, and five seconds later it's gone, and I, I, I don't know where it's What's gone because like? I haven't moved. 
Roy, if you were to look at my desk right now, I'm just in my office on the, in the hospital. It's like papers everywhere. Okay, I good, go good. Take the shovel here. So I know what you, I, I can empathize. Good. Well, well I'm glad. Um, so, so we have this uh, this theory that's going around. I don't. I forget what the term the term is. But it has to do with um, with uh, being vaccinated and not vaccinated, and uh, having protection or not having protection. And there's debate about whether, you know, what's doing what for. I'm not doing a good job here. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I oh, think good. you're referring to wow. something that sometimes is being referred to as immunity debt. Exactly. Thank you. So, you know, for starters, it's not the best term. It's kind of inaccurate. It doesn't portray what. Uh, I, I think it's a bad term, and uh, you know it seems to be a polarizing term. And I, I appreciate that it's 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 not the best. So the question is, why are why is everyone getting sick right now? One of the and and the short answer, let's just use the term uncertainty. We don't know entirely. There's several theories. We'll probably have a better idea uh, moving forward. And it doesn't stop us from doing exactly what we should be doing, which is putting on a mask in an indoor setting and getting updated on our vaccines, which will help alleviate illness. But I digress. Immunity debt. So the the real question is, is this because over the last couple of years, we just haven't seen and exposed ourselves to the same degree of infection that's normally done? And again, I'm not saying infection is good. We don't want people to get infected. We absolutely don't. But you can't ignore that in the past, there's lots of pediatric infections. And when you reduce that, uh, and then uh, uh, an immune-naive population gets all infected at the same time, you're going to see what we see now. That's one theory, keyword theory, okay? It doesn't mean that your immune system is weaker or, or atrophied. It just means that there's not the same degree of community-level protection because many of these kids haven't seen the same degree or frequency of infections that they would have normally seen in a non-pandemic year. That's one theory. Another theory is... Because there was such widespread COVID, does COVID do something to our immune system and dysregulate our immune system to some extent? And that creates uh, a, uh, an environment where we're more susceptible to severe infections. Uh, so the short answer here is there's no conclusive answer. These are just theories. We'll probably have a better understanding of what's driving this in the next, you know, in the months or year ahead. But having said that, regardless of what's driving it, you can reduce your risk of severe illness by getting vaccinated for the flu or COVID and by putting on a mask if you go into an indoor setting. Yeah. About a year ago, I was just looking at this. About a year ago, you and I were talking about an Angus Reid poll of Canadians. Seventy percent of us said uh, the unvaccinated should lose their jobs. A year ago. Not a fan of that. That's a year ago. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, it's different times. Different right times, now. for sure. And uh, I mean, in health, listen, I work in a healthcare sector. If you're going to be working with the vulnerable, if you're going to be working with people who are going to have a bad outcome if they got COVID, you got to be vaccinated. You do. You absolutely do. Um, and that's extremely important. Uh, but it's interesting because. Now, man, I don't want you, there's so many different angles to go down here, but one of them was earlier on in the vaccine rollout, the vaccine did a remarkable job in preventing infection and onward transmission. And as the virus evolved, we lost, didn't eliminate, but lost some of that protection against infection and onward transmission. But the vaccine still did a remarkable job in standing up toward preventing people from getting seriously ill, landing in the hospital and dying. So some of those policies about, you know, get a vaccine to prevent transmission, some of those policies became less and less relevant as the virus mutated. That's one angle, but I'm not sure which approach you want okay. to take for this one. You can talk for days. It's called Indigenous Nexus, bringing common sense and sensible environmentalism to natural resource development, a constructive way forward with Indigenous people. That's the headline. On the 25th of January of next year, so a few weeks from now, Indigenous leaders, the energy and mining industry, and governments are going to gather in Calgary for a first-of-its-kind conference on responsible and inclusive resource development. And you may not know this based on the protests that we see, 
65% of indigenous people support or strongly support natural resource development. That's according to polling. Calvin Helene is the CEO of Insight Advisors. Calvin Helene is the son of a British Columbia hereditary chief, was named to British Columbia's top 40 under 40, is a lawyer and an internationally best-selling author. Dances with Dependencies was the first book. Just amazing. Calvin, I just want to say this. Dances with Dependency is so relevant today, but even from a more broad perspective than you delivered initially, it's it's just bang on, and, and uh, thank you for all the books you write. You're very welcome, Roy. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Yeah, good to have you with us. What's what's the Indigenous Nexus objective, and, and who is involved? You know, we talk about the industry, uh, First Nations, and government. Be a little more specific, please. Well, this is an Indigenous led conference event, and uh, the idea of Nexus is to bring people together, bring people together in a spirit, a constructive way, and a spirit of, um, of uh, respect, and, uh, and uh, to, you know, honor the point of view that people have, whatever it is, um, and, uh, you know, you're your uh if you believe in in uh in something um you sh- there's this should be done in a respectful atmosphere for sure and and um in canada what's happened is uh the basically the countries learned that we're not going to develop our natural resources without indigenous people involved and um and if you listen to uh a lot of the um, the media that's promoted by what I call big green organizations. What happens is everybody has this idea that indigenous people are not interested in in uh, developing resources. Where their concerns are met about the environment, um, they're quite happy to. Uh, one group just bought into 1.2 billion dollars worth of Enbridge's uh, pipeline system in northern Alberta. Another one, there's several other groups that are interested in, in partaking in those. But it's not just pipelines, it's, it's the whole gamut of natural resources. I was brought up in a little coastal fishing village, and we were in the natural resources business. My dad was a commercial fisher, he was a logger at some point. This whole country is developed on our natural resources. And uh, the divisive uh, climate that's uh, emerged in relation to our natural resources, is really harming our country. Um, in in uh, the the past, we've we've built this country on natural resources. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I find really, Calvin? If I may, I, what I find really interesting is what you just said, and in the release that I received, um, Indigenous Nexus, sixty five percent of Indigenous people in Canada support or enthusiastically support the development of natural resources. That's a message that is not often heard. It, it isn't often heard because I think what happens a lot uh, whenever there's any kind of discussion is, you know, this uh, the talk about pretendians that is in the media where a lot of high-profile non-Indigenous people have fraudulently assumed indigenous identity and got all kinds of benefits from that. Yes. Well, well there's a whole a whole uh, cadre of eco-pretendians, people who pretend they're Indian, um, and they show up when the when the cameras are out, uh, protesting uh, natural resource projects, and they do it because it uh, helps their their NGO coffers. Or it, it's part of their ideology. But there is polling, right? I mean, you're telling me there's polling of First Nations, Indigenous people in Canada, which indicates 65% either support enthusiastically or support, one or the other, certainly do yes. support the development of natural resources because it's ultimately, and I've talked to First Nations chiefs about this, um, and you and I have talked about this before. 
that that the the position is look it it provides economic uh, prosperity it allows for uh, first nations to make decisions about their own future and to create their own uh, sustainable environment but most importantly it gives it's 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 an opportunity and it's an opportunity that I've heard time and again, and it's this is this is what registers me. It's an opportunity that shouldn't be denied by somebody who just doesn't want it to happen. Absolutely, there's a shift taking place in in the indigenous community. It's been taking place for some time, and it's really more pro business oriented, uh, with the caveat that. Things have to be done in an environmentally correct way. Okay, so what do you and do? What do you do though with the thirty-five percent? Sorry to interrupt you. What do you do with the thirty-five percent of First Nations or Indigenous people who don't want this this kind of development? It's it's a large percentage still. Yeah, it, it is a large percentage, but um, you don't uh, hold everyone else back because of a minority. I mean, that's what a democracy is based on. Um, right now. Um, there's lots of lots of really well-educated young people, and they're looking at the picture that I painted in in my book, Dances with Dependency, mm-hmm. and they're saying, "Hey, we need an economy," and they're educated, they're economists, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're business people, yeah. and they want to make a real difference to the uh, people in their communities. And uh, and and when you 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 zoom out of this, the, just the indigenous perspective, uh, and look at Canada from the point of view of what's happening in geopolitically with Russia and U- Ukraine. Look at the the fact that uh, the energy security and the critical miner- mineral security of most of the democratic world is is put at risk right now because those resources are tied up in um, those countries. Canada is a major solution to to this kind of uh, problem that's facing our um, our our democratic partners throughout the West. Yeah, ten years ago, we were going to be the country that was going to supply be supplying oil and natural gas to the countries that needed it. We we understand the transition uh, position and the transition uh, uh, process the way it should be done, not the way Europe's experiencing because they're. They're in a crisis, but Canada was going to be the country that was going to provide. And when the when the German Chancellor Schultz came here a couple of months ago, he wasn't coming for hydrogen. He wanted to have nat- natural gas, but they had that non-binding agreement that's supposed to deliver hydrogen by twenty twenty five from a from a facility that not even constructed. That that was an embarrassing moment for it Canada, was. In, my, in my opinion, because I agree. Here, how many times has the largest country in Europe come to our doorstep with hat in hand saying we all believe in the same democratic things mm-hmm. we we, uh, we bought into this idea of uh, of getting all of our gas out of one place and it was a very bad idea and we can't get our energy out uh, our uh, the energy we need when we need it mm-hmm. out of um, the uh, renewables Second. Yeah, it was a bad moment. Uh, Calvin, can you tell us, uh, tell our listeners how they can find out more about Indigenous Nexus? Yes, our, they can go online and they can check out uh, IndigenousNexus.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.